1945, scientists who helped develop the first nuclear weapons created something called the Doomsday Clock. As far as I can tell, it's only a metaphorical clock. I mean, they have that thing that, they, that you see on the screen that they trot out once a year. But I don't think there's actually a clock where you can go and actually see the real, literal doomsday clock. I think it's a metaphor. Midnight on the doomsday clock represents the complete destruction of the human race by human means. And every year, a group called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists they still call themselves that, even though there is, I mean, obviously, at one point they published something called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. I don't think they publish that anymore, but they like the name, I guess, so they stuck with it. And every year they trot out this thing and announce what they think the time is on the doomsday clock. They move the minute hand either closer to midnight, closer to the entire total destruction of the human race by human means, or further away from it, based on how close they think Humanity is to extinguishing itself. The original doomsday clock was set at seven minutes to midnight. And it has been moved back and forth over time. But this week, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists announced that they had moved the doomsday clock to 100 seconds before midnight, the closest it has ever been to the end of the world. And what this demonstrates is that everyone has expectations about the future. The people who put this clock together have an expectation that humanity is going to kill itself, is going to extinguish itself by some means. I think what they're doing is ridiculous on multiple levels. I think... If ever there was going to be an atomic war, this is not the closest we've ever been to it. The Bay of Pigs, I think, was probably closer than that. And of course, since the atomic threats have lessened over time, now they've moved on to talking about climate change and other so-called threats to the human race created by humanity itself. But I bring this up not to scare you that there's only 100 seconds until midnight, because they'll never tell you when midnight actually is. And so how do we know and how much time does actually one second of a hundred seconds in some metaphorical midnight actually relate to? It's absurd. The whole thing is absurd. But it shows you that people think about the future, and they think about specifically when this all is going to end. Everybody knows that at some point the human race will end in one way or another, that at least as we know it will end. And this earth that we live on will come to an end at some point. These are part of everyone's expectations about the future. The people who put together this clock, the doomsday clock, expect that humanity is going to kill itself. Before the sun explodes and destroys our solar system that way, they think we're going to have long destroyed ourselves by some human means. They have expectations about the future, and they are not good. The disciples of Jesus Christ also have expectations about the future. And this includes the original followers of Jesus Christ, the 12 men that we call the apostles and those who followed Jesus around on this earth and listened to his teaching and were devotees of his doctrine and believed in the gospel that he was preaching. They had expectations about the future as well. 
Their expectation was that Christ was going to set up a future kingdom on this earth, that Christ would banish and destroy all of his enemies, and so that would be the destruction of the unfaithful part of the human race under the judgment of God, and that those who belong to Christ would be welcomed into his kingdom where they would reign and rule with him forever and ever. And Jesus certainly taught these things. But he also taught some things that were confusing to the disciples. When he entered Jerusalem, just a few days before the section we're going to read today was delivered, when he entered Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, the disciples thought the time was here. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought the kingdom was right about to appear. And Jesus told them, woe unto the city of Jerusalem, that God's judgment was going to fall upon it. And then Jesus goes to the temple and he begins teaching. And after one of these teaching sessions, as we saw last Sunday in the first part of this two-part sub-message, as they were leaving the temple, the disciples point out to Jesus how beautiful the temple was, how amazing it was. And Jesus says, don't be so impressed because the time is going to come when it's completely obliterated. And the disciples wanted to know when. They said, Jesus, when on the doomsday clock that you've established? Is this going to happen? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? They were seeking answers about the future so that they could try to understand what God was doing in this world and what their role would be in it. Jesus delivered a message that's called, sadly, but that's what it's called, the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because it was delivered on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside the city of Jerusalem and overlooks the city. It's where Jesus spent his nights during the Passion Week, the last week of his life on this earth, uh, before his crucifixion, that is. And in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave us the most detailed picture that he gave us about the future and what his disciples should expect for the future. And that's where we are this morning. We're in the middle of this section of teaching called the Olivet Discourse. And last Sunday, we looked at the first couple of parts of it, where Jesus warned the disciples in a a roundabout way of of the fact that the kingdom wasn't going to arrive right away and the destruction of Jerusalem wasn't going to happen right away. And he warned them to beware of false prophets who predicted his coming and to beware of um, other things that would lead them away from following Jesus Christ. And then he said, before any of this happens, before my coming happens, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by armies. And so he talked about what the past held for the people of God. And he said that in the present, the the era that we're living in now, the gospel would spread to the entire world. It's called here in Luke, the, the times of the Gentiles. This is when God's message about salvation in Jesus Christ and about his coming kingdom transcends its Israeli background, its its Israelite background, and is preached to all nations. And all people are called and welcomed into the family of God if they turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they can, we can, await for the coming kingdom of Christ. So last week's message discussed the past and, in a sense, the present age under the heading of what is God doing in this world. Today we turn to the future. And in our passage for this morning, Jesus outlined what we should expect in the future. Everyone has expectations about the future, but Jesus gave us some teaching to help us understand what was going to happen in the future. And just as I did last week, I used the word outlined 
for a very specific reason, because Jesus really doesn't give us a lot of detail here. Other passages of Scripture, including other passages that record the Olivet Discourse, specifically the book of Matthew, other passages that record this same teaching of Christ give us more detail than what we have in our passage for this morning. And other passages in the New Testament, in the New Testament letters, and of course the book of Revelation, fill in a lot more detail about what the future holds for the people of God than do the verses that we are going to read today. And so Jesus outlines what to expect in the future, but his outline is a very general one, in a sense. And I say this in part to warn you that this is not going to be a detailed teaching and exposition of eschatology. And there are a few reasons why I'm not going to go into detail about eschatology and eschatological views. One is because the text doesn't. Okay? I'm, I'm actually preaching a series through the gospel according to Luke, yes? And so I've got to teach what Luke says. Not everything that's included and um, underneath and, and, and supporting what Luke says. All right? So I'm trying to teach this passage, not everything that the New Testament teaches. So that's one reason. Another reason is that virtually everything about the future is disputed by some Christian or some Christian group who I respect and whose views of the future are different than what I believe the Bible teaches, but whose commitment to Jesus Christ, I believe, is, is real and, and credible and, and truthful. And so the, not only do they disagree on the timing of these things and the meaning of these things, whether they're real or metaphorical, but the, the reasons why they disagree are also um, complex. And so the truth of the matter is teaching any one view of eschatology would take a long amount of time. Teaching all the views of eschatology that believers hold or have held would take an immense amount of time. And I don't want to do that today. There's a time for that someday in the future, if the Lord tarries. But this is not that time. And so I'm going to follow the outline that Jesus gave. And, I'm going to, and we're going to look together into the future and see what Jesus described in terms of what the future holds for us. In verses 15, or 25 through 29, I should say, Jesus outlined for us what we should expect in the future as his followers. Let's read that together. Luke chapter 21, verse 25 says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all, and all the trees, when they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. In these verses, Jesus outlined what the future is going to hold for the world. And he outlined these things in order to give us some expectations about what the future holds for us. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that God is going to signal the coming of the end. God will signal the coming of the end. Now, we need to step back and remember that the disciples were actually asking for this. This passage was all touched off after Jesus gave his teaching that 
Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed. And the, the disciples said, you know, when, when, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign that these things will take place? So they've been asking for signs. And Jesus said, don't be worried about wars in the world. That's going to happen, but that's not where the end happens. Don't worry about earthquakes and uh, all kinds of things. Don't worry about weird things that happened in the, in the stars. Those things will all happen long before the Son of Man returns, long before the end actually comes. There are going to be things that look like signs that don't signify anything, so don't be deceived about them. That's what we saw last week. Now Jesus is going to get into some signs, and he's going to say that there will be signals before the end comes, before the end of this age arrives. God will send some signals for us. One of the things he tells us in this passage is that God will send some signals in the sky. God will send some signals in the sky. Look at verse 25 again. It says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. That's all Luke gave us of what Jesus said. He said more than this, but this is what Luke gave us, that in the heavenly realm above us, there will be things that happen that are very unusual, and they will signify the coming of the end. Later on in our section here that I just read, um, after verse 25, in uh, verse 26, it says, uh, at the end of the verse, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay, and so we see twice, Jesus says, you're going to see things in the sky that will signal the coming of the end. Now, Matthew gave us some more detail about this in his exposition and his recording of the Olivet Discourse. And actually, in Matthew's description of it, he was quoting from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 10 and verse 34. And so I'm just going to give you a piece of this to show you that Jesus actually said more than that there's going to be signs in the sky. Here's what he said. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And so this is more than just the standard eclipses that we are familiar with, where sometimes the sun is eclipsed and sometimes the moon is eclipsed. And sometimes we see shooting stars and falling meteorites. This is way more than this. This is going to be a deep darkness upon the earth, both in day and night, unlike humanity has ever seen before. And when people look into the darkened skies, they're going to see shooting stars like humanity has never seen before. And there's going to be some kind of disruption. I don't know precisely what it means when it says the heavenly bodies will be shaken, but there's going to be some kind of disruption in the cosmos around us before the end comes. And all of this is to signal. It's a sign from God, a signal from God that the end is near for much of humanity. So Jesus tells us that God will signal the end, the coming of the end, and he'll do so with signals in the sky. But he also tells us there will be signals on earth. Look again at our verse, verse 25 says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive from what is coming on the world. In other words, in addition to problems in the heavens, there's going to be some weird things going on on earth too. There's going to be things going on with the oceans and seas that are deeply disturbing to humanity, and humanity will be disturbed about it. They're going to wonder, is this the end of us? 
What is, what is the meaning of these things? The, the Bible says there's going to be great terror on earth because of the signs that God is sending. And I think what we need to understand here is that Jesus is describing in a very general way what we know from other scriptures as the tribulation period. Okay, the Bible says there is coming, depending on how you interpret things, I interpret this literally, that there is coming a seven-year period. And during that period, there's going to be problems and distress all over the earth like never before. And a lot of things are going to happen during that period. At the end of that period is when these um, cosmological, you might call them, signs occur. When God starts to signal his coming wrath upon the earth with signs in the sky and with things on earth that terrify people. This is what Jesus is describing here. He is describing the seven-year period that the Bible tells us is coming someday in the future. And just to give you a little bit more information than what Luke gives here, I want to dip into just one part of what the book of Revelation tells us will happen during those days. So let me read to you from Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. This is only part of filling in what Jesus generally describes here in our passage. It says in verse 17, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. This is only one of the cosmological signs and earthly signs that Jesus says God is going to send as signals to the human race that the end is near. And so when we're thinking about the future, before the Bible describes a good future for the people of God, it describes a terrifying situation for everyone who's living on planet Earth at the time. After these signals occur, the thing that they're signaling occurs, and that is the coming of Christ. And we see this in verses 27 and 28. Christ will return to earth, and everyone on earth will know it. Now that last part is really important. Because remember, one of the false signals that Jesus said, don't be deceived by, is that people will come to you and say, the Messiah is over here, he's over there, he's in that room. Jesus says, no, no, when I return, everybody's going to know it. All right, look at verse 27. It says, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In verse 27, when it says they will see the Son of Man, you understand that the Son of Man is Jesus' preferred title for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than he does any other title. And he does so because of the prophecies of the book of Daniel, which prophesy the coming of the Son of Man. And so Jesus here is telling us about his return to earth. He's telling us about his second coming. 
And he says, when all of these signs in, in the heaven and on the earth happen and people are quaking in terror because they don't understand what's going on and what this means, she said, he says, at that point, Jesus is going to return. He's going to come in power and great glory with clouds. And everyone on earth will see his coming all at once. It won't be something that just happens in one slice of the world. His coming won't be something that happens in a, like it did the first time in a manger in Bethlehem and only a few people are privy to it. No, Jesus describes the fact that when he returns in verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And other passages of Scripture emphasize again that everyone on earth will see his return. And then at the end of our section, in verse 28, it says, When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This passage is describing what is called the second coming of Christ. And it's a coming of Christ where Christ comes all the way to the earth. Now, I need to stop here and talk about the rapture. And it's hard to talk about the rapture without talking about all the other eschatological views that are out there that I told you I don't have time to get into this morning. And so without trying to give you know, um, no attention to other views that good Christians have, let me just say that there is plenty of passages of Scripture that describe Christ descending to the heavens where he's visible and calling believers to himself. Okay, this is what we call the rapture of the church. You can read about it more in greater detail in 1 Thessalonians. The Bible says Christ will descend, the dead in Christ will be raised first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds. And the question that some Christians have, that many Christians have is, is this rapture going to come first and then the tribulation period, and then Christ actually comes for his second coming to earth? Or are the second coming of Christ and the rapture, do they happen at the same time? In other words, Christ calls all believers dead and alive to himself, and then they together proceed to the earth. There are good reasons for both interpretations, in my view. I was taught the pre-tribulational rapture. But the more I study scripture, the more I wonder about it, and the more I see a good case for what's called the post-tribulational rapture. And so I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to say one way or the other which one is correct, because that would take a whole lot of time. Well, what I am going to say is, if you believe and if the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture, that is not what Jesus is describing here. Jesus is describing the second coming, when he comes all the way to earth. And the purpose of this second coming is to judge the world and establish his kingdom. The Bible says that Christ will return to earth and everyone on earth will know it. And other passages of Scripture say that the people of the earth will, will moan, they will groan, they, they understand that they're in big trouble because they are under the judgment and will experience the condemnation of Christ, the Son of Man. But Jesus says there are going to be some on earth who have continued as his followers, who have believed in him and have lived through these times. And for them, the coming of Jesus Christ will be a glorious thing. Jesus says in verse 28, When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Whether there is a rapture before the tribulation or whether the rapture happens after the tribulation, either way, the Bible says there will be believers living on the earth at the end of the tribulation period. 
And the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the one where he comes to earth and establishes his kingdom, will be a cause of great joy for the people of God. Because we, the people of God, whoever's here who believes in God, will be redeemed. Our redemption will be completed. And we will be included in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. And so what are the points of the outline of the days of the future that Jesus gives? One is that God will signal the coming of the end. Then Christ will come and everyone on earth will know it. Finally, Jesus tells us, because Christ is king, his return to earth will begin his kingdom. Because Christ is king, his return to earth will begin his kingdom. Look at verse 29. It says, he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. All right, Jesus is saying the signs that I have told you about are not going to be hard to interpret. If you've read the Bible at all, you'll see it if you happen to be alive on earth when this happens. It's just like we know when, the, when one season is changing to the next, when spring comes and the trees, those, those bare branches of the trees begin to um, sprout again. And we start to see life coming back to the plants of the world. We know that spring and summer are coming near. We can read those signs. Jesus says these signs will also show you that the end is coming. And the end means the end of this age as we know it, and the beginning of the kingdom period. Verse 31 says, even so when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And see, that's the point. When Jesus comes again in his second coming, he is coming as a reigning king. First, he will judge the world. And then he will establish his kingdom on earth. And Jesus says, when you see the signs that God sends, and when you see the coming of the Son, know that the kingdom of God is finally about ready to arrive. And that's because Christ is king. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom. This is what we should expect in the future as the people of God. And we believe as a church, our doctrinal statement clearly teaches the literal second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom literally on earth. And so this is what we believe God is going to do in the future. This is not all Christ had to say. He had more to say moving away from sort of the outline of events to how we should think about them and prepare for them to come. And so the point of this message for us this morning is this. Be ready, because the king and the kingdom of God will certainly come in the future. Jesus just gave the disciples an outline of what the future holds, and there are a lot of questions that were left unanswered in this passage. And that's because Christ didn't really want the disciples to get bogged down in the kind of charts that you see when it comes to eschatological views. Instead, he wanted them to know that the kingdom is coming. It will be preceded by the return of the Son of Man, Christ himself, in judgment. But until that happens, we ought to live a certain way. Christ was far more concerned about our preparation for his coming than he was about us predicting the time when it will happen. And so in these verses that remain in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus told us to be ready. He told us to be ready because the king and the kingdom of God will certainly come in the future. Notice what verse 32 says. 
perhaps the most difficult verse in all of the New Testament to interpret. Okay? It says this, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. These two verses are given to us to describe, to underline the certainty of what Christ described. Jesus isn't saying, hopefully this is the plan and hopefully it will work out okay. Jesus is telling us in these verses, you can mark it down. This is how the end of the human race as we know it. This is how the end of this age as we know it will work out. This is how the end of this earth as we know it will come about. God will signal the coming of Christ Christ will come and redeem his people and judge those who are not his people. Christ will establish his kingdom on earth. That's a rough outline of what the future holds. But Jesus wanted his followers, he wanted us to understand that what he predicted in this passage is certain. And he did that by giving us these two verses, verses 32 and 33. When Jesus says in verse 32, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. The phrase this generation is the, the, the part that's hard to interpret here. Because usually when Jesus uses this phrase, he's referring to people who are alive at the same time as he is. And we know historically that the things that we've read about this morning have not been fulfilled, at least not in a literal way. And that's why there are some Christians who make metaphors of these things because they want to interpret and take seriously this phrase, this generation will not pass away. But I don't think Jesus is using this phrase, this generation, to refer to the people who were alive at the time he was alive. I think he's using the phrase, this generation, to refer to the entirety of the human race. And this goes back to the way I began this message this morning. I told you that everyone has expectations about the future. And people who don't know Christ, who don't believe the Bible... They expect at some point that the human race is going to end. The people who built the doomsday clock thought it was going to end in nuclear war. Now they think it's going to end through climate change. Other people think that... Time to wake up. <laughs> Other people think that the earth will end when the sun explodes and wipes out what's what's left of our solar system we know about other suns um this happening too right and so it's not hard to extrapolate the fact that our sun isn't designed to last forever either all right everyone has expectations about the future and those expectations in some way deal with the end of the human race this fascination with going to mars and traveling to space that's what this all is all about people are saying hey there's the clock is running on this uh planet and someday it's not going to be inhabitable, and so we'd better figure out how to escape as the human race. It ain't going to happen. And so I think when Jesus says this generation will not pass away, he's saying the generation of humanity, human people as we know it, are not going to extinguish themselves in global thermonuclear war, nor are we going to have a virus that wipes us all out, nor is there going to be some kind of coming zombie apocalypse that will be the end of the human race. Nor will aliens come and torpedo our planet with some kind of crazy laser. Nor will climate change or anything you want to think of be the end of the human race. I think when Jesus, because he's talking so certainly about, about we can bank on the future, I think what he's saying is you don't need to worry about the human race extinguishing itself. This generation, this humanity as we know it, 
will not pass away until all these things happen. And I say that mostly because of what follows in the next verse, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now see, Jesus is saying the world as we know it is going to pass away. The sky as we know it, the sun as we know it, the moon as we know it. God has a future that does not include them. Okay, He's going to make new stuff for us. And so I think Jesus is distinguishing between the continuation of the human race despite the extinction of the planet and the world reality that we are familiar with. And all of this is to emphasize that his prediction will come true because it is God's word. And so he says, you can bank on the fact the human race will be around to see this happen. Yes, heaven and earth will be destroyed, he says. But God's word lasts forever. And so you can build your life on this. You can build your confidence on this. You can live with confidence and do what Jesus is going to say next because this is God's word. This is God's promise. He is going to shepherd the human race through whatever problems we face as humanity until Jesus comes. And that's when the judgment of God will ultimately happen. And so Jesus is emphasizing here the certainty of the words and the predictions and the promises that he makes in this passage. Everything Jesus described here is certain to happen. And because it is certain, that means we must be prepared. Because it is certain, we must be prepared. Think about all of the catastrophes that have been prophesied by secular years. All of us, well, most of us, well, many of us, lived through the Y2K crisis, remember? When we were told that there were going to be massive, massive problems on January 1st of the year 2000 because those computers, those mainframes built in the 60s and 70s were not designed to hold four digits for the year. And so when that happens, they're all going to stop working and we won't have power, we won't have water, and it's going to be terrible. And Y2K happened, and what happened? Not a whole lot, okay? <laughs> And so man's predictions about the future, man's expectations about the future do not have a very good track record when it terms, when, in terms of coming true. But if you believed in the Y2K crisis, and if you thought, because there was a certain amount of logic to it, I thought, well, I don't think it's going to be as cataclysmic as people think, but my computer might not start the next day. That could, maybe that could happen, or it might act weird. So if you believed that there was anything to Y2K at all, you might have taken some precautions. You might have bought a little extra water, some extra food. You might have bought a generator just in case you needed it. You might have filled up the bathtub with water just to be sure. I don't know. But if you thought anything about Y2K was, was going to happen, you probably took some preparations. Jesus has emphasized to us that God has a future in mind for this world. And that future is going to involve at least some believers going through this period called the tribulation period and being on earth when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. How should those people prepare for that day? Jesus describes how in verses 34 through 36. Let's look at them together. Verse 34 says, Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come to all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son 
of man. Jesus gave some information about the future, but he was far more concerned that we believe that his return will begin his kingdom and that we live accordingly. And in these verses, he describes for us how we should live. The first thing he tells us in these verses is that we should live soberly. And that's really what everything that he's getting at in verse 34 when he says, be careful. That means live with great care. Don't get careless about your life. Be intentional and explicit about the way you live. Why? Or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Jesus here is not, so, not directly in so many words, but he's indicating that there is going to be some great amount of time between his first coming and his second coming. And during that amount of time, however long it is, it's gone longer probably than any Christian before this, this generation thought, and it's gone on further than a lot of people thought, including one that I talked about last Sunday. Jesus is saying there's going to be some kind of period of time between his first coming and his second coming. And we now know that that period of time spans thousands of years because here we are and he has not yet returned. And because there is going to be this long period of time, that means generations, not in the sense Jesus uses here, but in terms of the lifespan of humanity, those are going to come and go. People are going to live. They're going to, some of them are going to believe in Jesus and they're going to die. And the longer that a person lives on this earth, the more they are going to be enticed to live for this world. The more we're going to say, you know, Jesus didn't return yesterday, he didn't return today, and he's probably not coming tomorrow, and so maybe I don't really need to take my Christian life so seriously. Maybe I don't really need to abstain from all this world offers. Maybe I can indulge in some of the things that I'm curious about in this world. Jesus says, don't live like that. The Son of Man is coming. Be ready for him to come. And that means take great care in the way you live. Notice how he describes that care in verse 34. He says, be careful, be, be on guard, be intentional, or your hearts will be weighed down. See, here's the point. Your depravity, the part of you that's fallen, the part that, we, that yet awaits the redemption that Christ talked about in his second coming, that part still longs for sinful things. And those drag down our spiritual life when we indulge in those, spiritual, in those, uh, in those sinful things. And so Jesus says, unless you are very intentional and cultivate a walk with God, you're going to be tempted by the things of this world, and those things will drag down your spirit. And notice what he describes about those things in verse 34. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Carousing and drunkenness really describe the same thing. Carousing describes a drinking party a place where a lot of people intentionally go to get intoxicated. And drunkenness describes maybe your average day drunk, okay, or your average person who drinks alone. But either way, the Bible says the problems of this earth and the distractions of this earth tempt us to numb the pain that comes from this earth, or they tempt us to seek release from the problems of life to escape with intoxication, and Jesus says, if you're not careful, you might live, and most of his, I mean, all of us have lived a, you know, a normal lifespan, until, unless Jesus comes and, and the rapture happens during our lifetime. Every follower who's read this before us has 
lived and died. And so the point is the temptation is to just, just take part in this world, just act as if Christ isn't coming at all and just do what everyone else does, to escape the problems of this world through intoxication. Jesus says if you do that, it's going to weigh down your spirit. It's going to weigh down your heart. It's going to distract you from living a life that glorifies God and that is ready for his return. But he also talks in verse 34 about the anxieties of life. And these aren't, this isn't a sin like intoxication is or addiction is. This is something we all grapple with. And it's not necessarily talking about the anxieties that, that cripple us with fear. I think that's included, but I think there's more to it than that. I think it's just the everyday concerns, the fixing flat tires and paying the bills and doing your taxes and you know, the everyday stuff, repairing the leak in your roof or whatever it is. It's very easy for us to get so consumed with making a living and with providing for the, our family's needs and for doing all the things that have to be done that, that those things can come into our life and crowd out anything in terms of thinking about Christ and things of, in terms of um, serving Christ, in terms of worshiping Christ. We can get distracted both by our own internal heart that desires sinful things and just by the stuff of life that can suffocate every bit of our spiritual life if we let it. Jesus says if you're conscious of the coming of Jesus Christ and if you believe that his kingdom is what we're living for and if you're waiting for that coming so that his kingdom will come, then show it. By not letting this world and the things that it offers and the concerns that must be taken care of, don't let them suffocate your spiritual life. They'll weigh down your heart, he says. Instead, in verse 36, he says this, Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. When Jesus says, always be on the watch and pray, he's talking about our spiritual life. What is the antidote to being unprepared for the future whenever God brings it about? The antidote is to cultivate a spiritual walk with God. A person who is in prayer on a regular basis, not just praying for the bumps and bruises of life or even the difficult problems of life, but someone who's actually praying for the kingdom to come, which Jesus commanded us to someone who is praying for God's glory to be done in this world, someone who's praying for the spread of the gospel around the world, someone who's praying is elevated above the everyday things and has a view toward eternity, that person is not going to get distracted by the stuff of life because their heart is set elsewhere. It's set on that coming kingdom. And if you and I live our lives, even if we live in a sense obedient to the word of God, but we don't cultivate a walk with God, and we're not praying for his kingdom to come, we're not praying for much of anything, other than our daily needs. It's easy for us to be lulled into a sleep. Notice how Jesus describes what will happen. At the end of verse 34, he says, that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. The mouse that comes toward the cheese, or I use peanut butter, but toward the, the trap that's ready for it, it, it thinks it's about to receive something really good. It has no idea what's about to snap its neck. And Jesus says, when you and I get consumed by the cares of this life or the pleasures of this life, the same thing can happen to us. What's the opposite of this? Verse 36, 
Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. What is this saying? I think what it's saying is this. Jesus is talking to his disciples for sure. But you know and I know that throughout the book of Luke and throughout all of Jesus' teaching, he has warned his disciples that there are false disciples among them, that there are people who think they are followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they've never really come under his lordship. They've never really become his true followers. And people like that are very susceptible to the warnings that Jesus gives here. They're susceptible to being um, attracted by the sins and the pleasures of this world. They're susceptible to being consumed by the things of this life. They're not praying people. Even though they may profess Jesus Christ, they're not really living like he's real, like he's coming back, like his kingdom is what matters. I think Jesus is warning false disciples here. And he's saying, look, if you're the kind of person who says you're my follower, what you should you be doing? You should be praying that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. How does that happen? It happens by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's what a follower of Christ is. And that person at the end of verse 36, the scripture says that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. See, before the kingdom is set up, Jesus judges everyone. And the only ones who will be able to stand before him on the day of judgment are those who have turned from their life of sin. Not turned like they never sin again, but their mind is changed about it. Instead of wanting to live a life of carousing and drunkenness and being consumed by the things of this life, they change their mind and say, I want the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I want the coming of Jesus Christ. I want to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to live my life for his gospel. That change of mind comes when God makes a new person. When we hear the gospel message and he gives the gift of life and we turn from the way we used to think and instead we say, I believe that Jesus died for me and I want to be his followers. I think Jesus is describing here the conversion experience. He's warning his would-be followers to make sure they're real followers of his. To not be lulled by a false profession of faith, but a life that lives like everyone else on earth does. They're going to be people who think they're Christians and that day is going to consume them like a trap because they weren't genuinely changed by the power of God and therefore they weren't ready, they weren't prepared for the coming of the Son of Man. Well, he hasn't come yet. And so that means it, this, the, the door is still open. The door is still open for you to prepare yourself, to be ready because the king and the kingdom of God will certainly come in the future. And if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you think you're a Christian, but as you think about your life, as you think about your prayer life, the evidence for it is hard to come by. This message is for you. God doesn't want to, God didn't foretell the future in a way where we could sort of plan out his coming and, and know precisely when it's going to happen. God did this on purpose because he wants us to live by faith. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we don't know when these events, the, at least the beginning of them, is going to happen. There will be signs and signals, but as we saw in one verse this morning, many people will reject those signals and they'll curse God. This is your moment to become a follower of Jesus Christ. This is how you escape 
the trap of that day. This is how you will be able to stand before the Son of Man if your faith is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let me urge you, let me welcome you to join the family of God by faith <coughs> in Jesus Christ today. <coughs> When we think about end-time events, what we need to do is be ready because the King and the Kingdom of God will certainly come in the future.